You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. I have such a great conversation for you this week. So for a little background, my personal goal is to learn something each and every podcast, because I figure if I spend all my time researching all of these issues and I walk away with new information that hopefully you all will too. And this week, I most definitely did. I sat down with Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, who is a professor in exercise physiology, an adjunct associate professor in nutrition, the director of the Applied Physiology Laboratory, and the co-director of the Human Performance Center at the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Abby was the lead author of a paper titled Creatine Supplementation in Women's Health, a Lifespan Perspective, which was published in Nutrients in 2021 and is a paper I cite all the time. And she is also the lead author of a paper titled Active Women Across the Lifespan, Nutritional Ingredients to Support Health and Wellness, which was published in Sports Medicine last year. And she is a, as you might expect, wealth of knowledge. Abby answered so many questions that I had about fasted training, supplements for menopausal women, and how we can best fuel ourselves for this time of our lives. But she also answered questions I've always wondered about personally, but never really had great answers for, like why, though bananas are clearly popular energy food in endurance circles, I can't keep one down during a race or even a hard ride. She also answered why I feel 10 million times better on my bike when I eat some bacon with my breakfast or fuel myself with protein-rich snacks before and during workouts, though that's not really the standard fueling recommendation you generally hear about in endurance spaces. And I am just really grateful that she was willing to share so much of her expertise and enthusiasm on this topic with us. So I hope you enjoy and learn as much from this conversation as I did. I will put links to her website and her research in the show notes of this episode so you can check that all out. All right, before we get to it, Remember, sign up for my free weekly blog at feistymenicboz.com. It's where I distill all the latest research and what it means for you. You can follow us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. Come join our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group where we have more than 21,000 women in there now helping each other out. If you want to watch this show, you can do so on our Feisty Menopause YouTube channel. And uh, thank you again for all the reviews and the ratings that keep coming in. It helps me continue to get great guests. I have some really exciting people coming up, so I really appreciate it. All right. Finally, a very quick thanks to Prevenex for their longtime support of this show. 
Abby talks about the importance of getting enough omega-3 fatty acids for lowering inflammation and minimizing joint pain, and that for most of us, that means supplementation. And Prevenex makes some amazing omega-3 supplements. So thanks, Prevenex, for your continued support of this show and all of us. All right, enough of me. Let's have a few words about those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. This show is brought to you by AminoCo. As active women, we need amino acids. And as we reach midlife and menopause, we need them more than ever to prevent muscle breakdown, maximize fat burning, and keep our mental game on point. But not everyone wants to eat a ton of protein before they head out for a hard workout. So I'm very psyched that AminoCo is here and supports our show and community. I swear by their Perform product before and sometimes even during my long swims, runs and rides, and hard lifting sessions. Supports my muscles, prevents muscle breakdown and soreness, even when I'm doing two sessions a day. And aside from helping my muscles, I love how mentally focused and energetic it makes me feel. Perform is 100% science-based and proven to improve muscle performance, reduce fatigue and recovery times, and increase the benefits from workouts. They say it, I feel it. Their products are also soy-free, vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. If you want an easy way to get your aminos to boost your mental and physical performance, AminoCo's Perform is it. And right now, you can get 30% off Perform or any AminoCo products and receive a free gift for new purchasers by visiting AminoCo.com slash HipPlay and use the code HipPlay, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's AminoCo.com, A-M-I-N-O-C-O.com slash HipPlay, and I will put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Get some today. This show and last night's Super Cozy Sleep is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cool Jams, the makers of amazing sleepwear products and cooling bed sheets made specifically for women in menopause. I have been sleeping in their moisture-wicking shorty pajama set, and I can attest they are super soft, super comfy, and they really do keep you cool. In the name of science, I exercised late and went to bed without the AC for a few days, despite it being August and plenty hot in Pennsylvania, so I knew I would break out in a sweat sometime during the night, and I did. But I stayed cool and dry thanks to Cool Jam's science-backed moisture-wicking material that has a proven effect on temperature regulation. It was really pretty cool, literally. If you're looking for cool, soft, breathable, lightweight, stylish, moisture-wicking PJs for those night sweats, Cool Jams has you covered. Just use the discount code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, to get 15% off all sleepwear and bedding products in the Cool Jam shop. You'll find a clickable link in the show notes, so just head over there, buy your Cool Jam sleepwear, and get a cool, comfortable night's sleep every night. My return back to Ironman training and this show are brought to you by Prevenex. Thanks to their incredible Joint Health Plus product, I've gone from not being able to budge my arthritic big toe and waking up at night with it aching to training for a 70.3 Ironman on it totally pain-free. And I've heard from many of you whose hips, hands, knees, and feet no longer hurt either. The stuff works better than any other glucosamine or chondroitin or collagen products I have ever tried, and I have tried a lot. And I looked up their ingredients on examine.com and it's clear why. Everything they use is backed by sound science, and I'm grateful for that. 
Prevenex also offers an array of other supplements, including Omega Pure Plus, Immunity Plus, a probiotic, and their Neurofy Plus vegan protein powder, which is incredibly digestible and helps me bounce back after hard training days. Thanks to their sponsorship of this show, listeners can get 15% off their first time purchase by using the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. So go to Prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code HIPPLAY, one word, all caps, at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. You'll find a clickable link in the show note for all of that. And if you don't like it, the company offers a 100% money back guarantee on all their products within 30 days, no questions asked. That's how much they stand by their products, and I can tell you with good reason, they work. Check them out today. All right. Well, as I was just saying before I hit record, I'm really excited to have you here. I've been following your research and I really loved the paper that you had in uh, sports medicine on active women across the lifespan, sort of the nutritional and supplemental considerations. We have a very active, very performance minded audience, and they are keenly interested in so many of the things that you addressed. So thanks again for taking time to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love um, like uh, you fit in this category of education dissemination. And I love that you you do that. And part of why I'm motivated to do my work is to chat with people like you to get it to hands. So thanks for that opportunity to be here. Excellent. Well, let's set the stage a little bit. I mean, you started in that paper talking about some of the general physiological properties of skeletal muscle that I thought was pretty interesting in females and, you know, how we use different macronutrients and substrates. So maybe we could set the stage there. Yeah. And I mean, I should say like my take is that as females, we have a very special physiology, but that doesn't mean, um, you know, we need to alter everything we've been doing for the last 20 years. Uh, but I do think that we need to give it more airtime and um, science to understand what happens particularly as our hormones change and, you know, active women get older. And so some of the key physiological differences that are in the research that we know about um, really rely, rely on metabolism. So what we use for fuel, um, there's new data and, and growing data about how our women or our muscles as women use proteins. Um, and then I think there's some really good data on uh, like blood flow, vasodilation, how some of those things differ between uh, men and women. But I think the good thing is that women's muscles adapt just like men. Uh, it, it, there's just some, I think, better things we can do nutritionally to support those changes as we get older. Yeah. And, and is there is there anything to our muscle composition in general as far as whether we have more type one or type two fibers? Does that does that play a role at all in what we're going to talk about? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think as a physiologist, we know all of that can adapt and there's a big genetic component to that. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one hallmark difference is that we do have theoretically or kind of generally more type one muscle fibers, more oxidative capacity, and then therefore greater kind of fat infiltration within the muscle, which is great depending on the type of exercise you want to do. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, important, like, I feel like we sometimes as women, like, pigeonhole us and saying like, oh, here's what we're dealt with. But at the same time, like you can adapt the muscle, even as you get into your 60s. So just recognizing that's not like a limitation, just maybe um, something we can hone in on. 
Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And and can we talk a little bit about like the the role that estrogen plays in this and how our sex hormones influence the physiology we're going to talk about? Yeah, the best way I like to describe it is that as women, because we have estrogen, we are more um, efficient at burning fat for fuel. And so all of us should burn fat at rest, but women tend to rely more on that. And one thing I think about then is if we're doing uh, things like low to moderate intensity exercise, um, we will perform better at those activities if we are um, utilizing fat like we should. Um, and so that, you know, a lot of times that uh, we translate that to performance and women tend to outperform men in those very long duration, lower intensity exercises. And part of that just goes back to fuel utilization. Yeah, they're outright winning like 300 mile running races. <laughs> you know, like if, it, if you make it long enough. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think this, I know this might come up, but I think it's another benefit that uh, really should drive home some of our nutrition recommendations. And the way I always like to describe sometimes I describe this to my students is that if we are meant to def- uh, utilize fat for fuel, regardless if it's 300 miles or it's, you know, five miles, um, as women, we often can lower and men do this too, but lower our capacity to burn that fuel if we're feeding lots of carbohydrate. Um, And so a lot of my work looks at, well, how do we manipulate some of those macronutrients and more, what should we eat around exercise to help us maximize fat? And now fat doesn't always mean I'm going to lose fat and that's not always the goal, but regardless, our, our goal should be, how do we maximize energy metabolism so that we feel better, perform better, recover better? And so I think that is sometimes the disconnect with what the messaging that we're giving to women, you know, like eat less, exercise more and, you know, oh, carbohydrate snacks around exercise. Like, I think some of that is where we can really start to finesse our recommendations for women. Can we just talk more about that then? Like, what is that, especially, and we are talking to a perimenopausal and, and postmenopausal audience particularly, and I'm not sure if if there's changes that we need to talk about as far as substrate utilization with this audience, but um you know, we, we do, there's so much confusion and so much noise. Like we have a lot of women being told they shouldn't eat any carbs, right? They should be like 9%, 10% carbs. And, and there's, I push back on that because I worry about low energy availability and, you know, we need fiber. So what is, what does that look like as far as what, in your opinion, like the macronutrient breakdown should look like and, and where maybe we should, um, put them in our day even, you know, for, for the best performance and health. Yeah. And I love your messaging. Like I would never tell a woman not to eat carbohydrates. Um, I think the timing of carbohydrates and it really depends on how much exercise they're getting. So if you have a woman that's performing more aerobic exercise, they absolutely need more of those, you know, starchy carbohydrates. We have a lot of triathletes. Yeah, exactly. So those, um, I mean, in those women, you you need to have carbohydrates pre, during, and post-exercise. Uh, but I do think, you know, one thing women do is, uh, and the other issue that's more prevalent in women than men is gastrointestinal distress, especially with triathletes. Yes. And, and so I think that's, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) well, and actually, um, there's a startup company that is trying to create, um, well, they have created, we're trying to find some data of, um, different types of carbohydrates and gels 
uh, plant-based gels prior to and during exercise, particularly with hormonal changes. Because a lot of the products on the market, even different types of food, let's say like a banana, like might, it may cause more GI distress. And I think that science is still evolving. And so one reason I bring it up is like, if you're a woman and you've had carbohydrates prior to exercise and it makes you feel like you got to go to the bathroom, like sometimes different type of carbohydrate sources. Or one thing that we've looked a little bit at is um, essential amino acid ingestion. So essential amino acids do cause an insulin spike, which can help, you know, kind of that glycemia load, but then making sure you have carbohydrates post-exercise. So it's almost like allowing by having amino acids in the body prior to exercise, it allows us to maximize fat oxidation, prevent muscle protein breakdown and provide that kind of insulinemic response. But then post-exercise, like when our muscles are pretty, uh, like I, I, I think of them as a sponge, you wrung them out post-exercise is the best time to have carbohydrate and it's going to have less of that um, negative uh, GI response. So are are you, um, are you saying that you don't think that it's necessary to have any carbohydrates before? I I mean, no, no, it depends on the exercise environment. Um, If I'm going to go out for a run in the morning, like what does that look like? And I love that you're saying this because I just want to, I have spent, many, many years as an endurance, ultra endurance athlete. And my GI system, it's usually like I get nauseous easy. Like I, I, that is my problem. And then I don't want anything and my stomach shuts down and it's a nightmare. Um, And it's definitely sugars, but like I have found that when I have, and it can be ludicrous, can be like a Slim Jim or some sort of like protein, I feel like world's better. So what you're saying is like falling on my ears in a, in a big way. Well, yeah. And I think that is where like a lot of my work specifically looks at dietary supplements, not because whole food is bad, but like I was an endurance athlete in college and I I still do endurance activities and I can't eat a whole source of protein before I go exercise before I, you know, whereas I can do like a protein shake or an amino acid. So it's more just, um, but I would love to look at some different food sources. And so when it goes back to your question about Um, what should you eat before exercise? If you have GI distress, like you do, like I do, particularly coming from sugars, what I would do is more of a, a, like a liquid protein shake or a liquid amino acids. Um, and then making sure my meal after has some pretty fast absorbing carbohydrates and replenishment. If you're someone that has less GI distress, but you're still trying to maximize carbohydrates, some of it, or um, fat use and, you know, performance, some of it depends on, well, how many carbohydrates are you eating throughout the day? And then putting some of them prior to with protein will be even more advantageous. That makes sense. And is there a, is there an amount of those essential amino acids that you're looking at? Yeah, like we've looked um, specifically at six grams. So the other thing I think is kind of unique is, you know, for a long time in my industry of, you know, sport, nutrition, dietary supplements, we see a lot of work around branch chain amino acids. Mm -hmm. And those are very beneficial during like long endurance activity, because that's what's most highly oxidized. So like when I do my triathlons, I'd put those in my water bottle with some Gatorade or something But now, um, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't get essential amino acids through a supplement. It had to be intravenous. Now, essential amino acids are similar to branch chain amino acids, like in a powder form. Mm -hmm. 
And so usually one scoop, three grams, three to six grams, like I would say a higher amount for an older woman, like it and harder training. Um, those amino acid supplement forms, I think provide a lot of utility for enhancing kind of what we eat before and after exercise and in between meals, um, just greater bioavailability to help with protein synthesis and turnover. So you're using, you're using the essential amino acids before, like before exercise. Yeah. Before and after we have one study, it, it is, um, with, uh, we, we looked at men and women with high intensity interval training, um, and purposely wanted to look before and then dose them again, just as far as compliance. Um, some of that depends, like personally, if it were me, I would rather do the essential aminos before and then have a meal after. Um, and then a lot of times what we would recommend is if you have, um, a woman, particularly as they're getting older, um, one, our palate for protein changes, or, you know, if we're not able to have a meal, then we would put those amino acids kind of in between meals. It just, they tend to have a greater absorption and bioavailability than some other forms of protein. And you just mentioned high intensity training. You know, we do also have a lot of women who do CrossFit in, in, you know, those kind of activities. Are the recommendations pre pretty much the same? Yeah. So one thing I'll I'll tell you is most of our work in this has been done in our um, premenopausal. And then what we're identifying now, uh, we have one study that's finishing up to try and identify do protein needs, like do our protein breakdown change over a menstrual cycle. And then we have some early data that suggests that our protein turnover, like our anabolic resistance drops pretty significantly from pre to peri and levels from peri to post. Um, And so one of the studies that we're developing now is really to look at that. Well, how big of an effect does that pre-protein feeding change in our peri group? But it has a big effect in our pre menopause group, like it increases training volume, it enhances exercise capacity and fat oxidation and even energy expenditure. So if it's influencing a normal healthy muscle, when you do that in a compromised, I wouldn't say compromised in a bad way, but a less sensitive muscle like perimenopause, I can only imagine an even greater effect. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. And what what about maintaining um, blood sugar during like exercise? What what kind of, I mean, are, are you looking at simple carbs? I mean, like what's the best way to sort of like, you know, I mean, you see some of the world-class tour men riders pushing a hundred, hundred, more than a hundred grams of carbs an hour now. Like it's, and I, I just talked to Dee Dee Griesbauer who set the, the world record for Ultraman and she's pushing those limits to it. She said it took her a long time to train her gut to do that. But I'm curious, like what your thoughts are for the carbohydrate ingestion during. Yeah. I mean, I think one key thing is that training, you know, training the gut. Um, The other thing, I think there's some early science definitely need more, but is using like a super starch. So like a, you can, or Vitargo, I feel like that's a good option for women so that they can get some of that more slow releasing without the fiber. Um, Nobody's really looked at that, to be honest, particularly in that middle to late female age span. 
So I'd have a hard time saying actual gram amount because it so yeah. much depends on, you know, volume intensity in, in the woman. Um, but I think emphasizing like in a, you know, in an intra workout or intra race, I would, I would think about doing carbs and an amino acid source um, to help with kind of fuel use and oxidation. So that's helping with fat ox- oxidation is what I'm hearing. With- well, yeah, yeah. The other thing that we saw, um, this is also published, but from pre to peri, perimenopause, we see some um, what we call metabolic inflexibility at moderate intensity exercise. And so what, how I would define that is just, um, we're using more carbohydrates than we should in, you know, or less fat than we should in that moderate intensity exercise. And so that leads to two things. One, if you're doing high intensity, long duration aerobic exercise, you're going to glycogen deplete faster. Um, or if your goal is exercise and some fat loss, you're not going to lose fat. You're going to be more fatigued and need more carbohydrate. And so I think some of those protein feedings, um, around exercise can help modify that. I also think it could, um, it, it just emphasizes the need for carbohydrate intake. If you're doing longer aerobic exercise to prevent glycogen repletion. What's the physiology behind that? Like what's actually happening? Yeah, I don't know if we know yet. I think it it comes back to um, the hormone impact on, uh, well, some of it's fat oxidation. But honestly, I think uh, a lot of it comes from just um, dietary intake. So when we look at when we've looked at some of this, it's controlling their, their fasted, it's pulling up more chronic intake of food but not necessarily like I think the best part about physiology is that you can perturb most of that by acute intake of food or training. And so I don't know if I have a great question, but I think it's coming from either low energy availability. So low, you know, intake or the opposite of, of too high of carbohydrate intake can blunt some of those things. But the interesting thing is we don't see it at low intensity exercise. We saw it mostly at moderate intensity exercise. And then at high intensity exercise, your body's going to burn carbohydrate no matter what. That's what we want it to do. So I don't know if we know yet. Ask me in a couple of years. (laughs) But is the protein, are we using protein during exercise differently as females? Well, so most of the methods we use to measure metabolism is just assuming that we don't use any protein. Okay. Um, so based on some more indirect assessments, we've used whole body protein turnover. As far as I know, nobody's done a lot of muscle biopsies in this group yet. Um, so I don't know if I can totally answer that. Um, but what I would say the muscle in general appears to not be able to use protein as well from in that peri to post, which doesn't mean like we're doomed. I just look at it as like, Um, paying attention to the protein around exercise and higher protein intake throughout the day can have a huge impact on muscle size, quality, recovery, et cetera. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and we rarely talk about fat because it seems like fat just comes along for the ride, but do you have thoughts on like what the fat intake looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of why we never talk about fat is because everyone's in this keto phase right now. Um, but I think one thing to that I like to share with this group of women is that if we can do anything to minimize inflammation and maximize um, 
kind of sell health, then we can do that by maximizing our essential fatty acid intake, which is omega-6 and omega-3. And so I don't care who you are, we can all do a better job of increasing those types of fats versus like the more commonly saturated fats. That doesn't mean don't eat those things. But I think just the day to day and the training, if we can increase particularly omega three, it can impact not only fuel utilization, but just that low grade inflammation. Um, And then one thing that I think is hard to separate is just the mental changes that happen to women as we age kind of from pre to peri to post the increased anxiety and depression. And we know omega three has a big impact on kind of brain health and inflammation. Do you recommend supplementing with omega three? I mean, if you're being honest, yes. I mean, like, I would say if you eat salmon every day, no, or if you eat salmon on the days you eat salmon, maybe take less of it, but it's really hard to get. Um, and when we start talking about like sustainable sources, you know, the, the omega three fish oil is a, is a, is a staple, um, particularly what I think is pretty cool, which you probably see a lot of is we have so many women that participated in like the title nine, like these women that are now kind of getting into their sixties, like regardless of who you are, if you are active, you're going to have joint pain and aches. Like that's the, you know, the downside. And there's some really good data with omega-3 supplementation of minimizing pain and joint pain. Kind of, it, it works in the same pathway as the ibuprofen, but it's easier on the, on the liver, et cetera. Um, I think the other piece that's helpful is, everyone's looking, all these women want like, they're looking to collagen for beautiful hair, skin and nails. Um, But that like omega three replenishes the phospholipid bilayer of every cell, like it really helps with, you know, dry flaky skin and nails and hair. So it's just one of those things that helps everything. And we it's hard to get that in the diet. Yeah, it it is hard to get that in diet. So I'm, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I asked the question. So speaking of, are there any other, before I move on to sort of some of the supplements you talked about, is there any other thing regarding sort of the whole macronutrient picture that women in this menopause transition and beyond should know? Um, I mean, I think it's still, whether I want to say ludicrous or not, like, why do we not have female specific recommendations? And I think a lot of people want to push back and say like, well, we don't have enough science. And I, I mean, we always need more science, but I do think that we as women need to do, you know, roar a little bit louder to say like, well, yeah, if I am a, you know, I know, (laughs) right. Um, If I am, uh, you know, a 60 year old woman and I'm doing endurance exercise, like my needs are different than a man's. And even my, I think that perimenopause group, um, we need yes, more data, but I do think we can start um, getting some more granularity of like, yes, you probably need a little bit more carbohydrate if you're doing this, or we need higher protein intake if you're doing this. So whether those are all hashed out yet, no, but I also think as women, like nobody's going to stand up for those changes to be made. And so I think it's um, about time that we do have some female specific recommendations, even knowing those might change over time. And I think we're really close to that. Oh, that's, that's exciting. And of course, they'll change over time, like they all change over time. You know, it, it's, uh, you have to start somewhere and science is an evolution. I mean, it's never set in stone, right? We just learn and adapt. Well, especially with women, because now you have, um, you know, differences in hormones, as you go through period to post, you have hormone replacement theory of, you know, different 
oral contraceptions. But I do think we have some initial evidence of at least like, here are some baseline differences across the menstrual cycle you might want to think about. And then if we think about, well, where are your hormones? Or, you know, at least having a woman um, know like, oh, I'm not performing well. And this is how I've been eating for a long time. Like, let's consider like, maybe I do need more carbohydrate, or maybe I gained weight, maybe I need less carbohydrate and more protein, really kind of thinking about it. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of people you can have that conversation with. But I think people like yourself, and there's enough voices now that, um, you, you know, we can have the conversation. Before we move on, I mean, there are women, you know, in perimenopause, obviously, who are still cycling, right? They they, they might have irregular cycles, or maybe it, they're still somewhat regular. Are there, in your mind, considerations around the menstrual cycle itself, as far as um, manipulation of your macronutrients? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to, are you trying to perform? Or are you just, um, which sounds like most of your your women are. And I would say, yeah, like based on our, um, I mean, I think carbohydrate tends to be the most sensitive Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, during the follicular phase, we, we have more, um, carbohydrate utilization, which just means we might need higher carbohydrate intake. And then in the luteal phase, it's a little bit different. Um, I, my question would be, is there a reason to carbohydrate load or saturate the muscle depending on your exercise? Um, because then if yes, we would want to bump up the carbohydrate. Otherwise, in the luteal phase, one thing I, I have women think about is um, our, it appears that our protein needs are elevated. Um, and so you might be more sore, you might take longer to recover. So like just thinking about nutritional, like, definitely don't skip a meal after you exercise, especially if it's high intensity, you know, some minor tweaks. And, and sometimes it's just, um, asking yourself, well, wow, well, yeah, I feel like shit today. Like, what did I do different? Um, like where am I at in my cycle, which is what's hard for perimenopause because you know, it no longer is regular. Um, but I think having, like, it's not always because you're underslept, which does have an impact or you're training really hard. I think that's where nutrition can help some of those symptoms. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I, I used to be able to slack more. <laughs> I can't slack as much. Like the the nutrition, the recovering nutrition has become so much more important. Um, yeah. So well, and I think that's where like I, I a lot of people recognize that, and I would say even the pre exercise nutrition becomes more important as we age. Whereas like I was an endurance athlete, I still am, and a lot of times it's like, well, don't eat before you exercise, especially now like fasted exercise. Well, as a as a woman, I wouldn't recommend that. That doesn't mean you have to have a huge meal, but that again, goes back to those, like anything like those amino acids or depends on what your stomach can handle that can make a big impact. Yeah. hundred percent agree. I know you've done a lot of work with creatine and I'm curious, you know, your thoughts there, because it's something that we, we definitely recommend. And I've seen women, including myself have a lot of success with. So I'd like to talk about some of those supplementations that you looked at in that piece, because I think a lot of them are pretty interesting for this audience. And maybe we start with creatine. Yeah. I mean, I'll make a caveat. When I was a collegiate athlete, I didn't believe in supplements and I wish I did. Like I wish. (laughs) Um, and even now I'm surprised like the number one supplement consumer is a, is a woman. Yet, like, look at the market, it doesn't cater to us. And so I'm also a big believer in food. And so I, I wanted, you know, like, I, I don't think all women should take all these supplements, but there are some that matter. And I think creatine has the most compelling evidence in a way that it targets not only muscle and performance, which is cool, but it's, it's not like, 
it makes that much of a difference. Like it may give you a little bit extra, um, but the impact that it has on um, even brain health, um, you know, kind of anxiety, depression. And then more recently um, we've looked at kind of what, how does it impact across the menstrual cycle? Hmm. And um, we have some performance data that is not quite published yet. Um, and then this fluid data. So like a lot of times if you tell someone, oh, you know, take creatine, they'll say it causes weight gain and bloating. Um, when really that hasn't ever been shown in women. So women tend not to gain weight. And we just, you know, recently validated that. And then what's happening is it pulls water into the cell. Mm -hmm. And so um, it can do two things. When our hormones are high, it actually causes bloating, which you don't have to tell a woman that, but um, not not necessarily creatine itself, but just in general, we have more extracellular fluid. Um, but what we've seen is that creatine actually pulls more water into the cell, so it can prevent a little bit of bloating, and it can help with thermoregulation or preventing dehydration. Like that would be the next study is to say, like, if we put someone through like a very hot environment, kind of like that, that scenario, what happens, but it, it does appear that it, it can prevent dehydration by just simply holding more water into the cell. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good benefit. Um, and especially with this audience who has a little more trouble with thermoregulation. I think exactly. that is mm -hmm. especially and it seems to be more helpful in the luteal phase. Um, and so the way I would interpret that is if, I mean, if you're a woman, I recommend like five grams every day, but let's say you have an event or you have never taken creatine, um, loading kind of during ovulation or right before the luteal phase, you could see greater benefits by just saturating, having your muscle saturated with creatine going into the luteal phase. Uh, what other ones do you think that you've looked at in these papers and beyond. I mean, magnesium comes up a lot in this audience, the probiotics. Um, what what shines for you for this audience? Yeah, I mean, I think the given, I, I mean, I think magnesium has some really insightful research for a couple of reasons. Um, um, kind of as we go through, whether we're talking about perimenopause or pregnancy, some of our needs change via magnesium. And I think the other element is, is the, you know, kind of the hot flashes and the changes in hormones that impact sleep. Magnesium can help that. Um, probiotics, I think, are great, but it should be strain specific. So, for example, if a woman isn't having any GI, you know, like it really just depends on the symptom. Um, but I think that's a great strategy. I mean, I guess I don't know a woman that doesn't deal with GI distress. Um so I see that I think the the issue with some of the probiotics and prebiotics is just what's on the market and what can actually get into the gut. I think we need some better products there. Um, one thing I'll speak to that I've studied for a long time that we need more data in this group, but I think has a lot of potential is beta alanine. Mm. And so, it, you know, like I studied this a long time ago and um, it has a great application for fatigue resistance. So, you know, if you take your group, I wouldn't recommend this to every woman, but if you're talking about a woman that's doing a lot of exercise. Um, so one thing to think about is we naturally have carnosine in our muscle, which is what beta alanine increases and it acts as a buffer. But if our muscles are getting smaller with age or just 
um, you know, some adaptations were switching from, you know, type two to more type one muscle fibers, uh, carnosine also declines. And so I find beta alanine, one of those really cool things that helps you recover, gives you a little bit more benefit to your training. The best way to describe it, and we've tried to like, look at what is the mechanism. Um, now we have it is a buffering agent, but the best way to describe it is like by just buffering hydrogen ions, it shouldn't make you feel this good. Um, like the best way to describe it is you might go for a training session. And it's not like you feel any better during your training session. But after you feel like you didn't do such a hard training session. Um, so that's one of those things, like if you have a woman that's all, always feeling kind of fatigued and they've looked through some other things, I think beta alanine has some really great application for this group that hasn't been directly studied. But if you look at the mechanism and all the years that I've looked at it, that would be one thing I would recommend. I've used it a lot. I used it when I was racing, stage mm-hmm. racing. I really appreciated it. Um, are you just using it pre-exercise? No. So that's the unique thing. And I think why a lot of people don't see effects is because they take it with like a pre-workout. Yeah. So it's usually used that way. Yeah. um, What we know is that it needs to be in a loading phase. So you need four to six grams a day for about 28 days. And then it tends to stay in your system. It has a longer half-life than most things. So like beta alanine is one of those things that you would cycle on and cycle off or you could. Um, and like one way I, like I've used it, I don't use it all the time. I'm not, you know, competing for anything crazy, but like, I remember postpartum, um, when I was getting back into training, like I started taking it, um, part of it too, I'll say with something like beta alanine and creatine is that you can get it in your diet, your body makes it, but it's like having your normal daily intake of protein plus adding additional, like six chicken breasts, like who, who has time to do that? Um, which is why it's a supplement, you know, like square away your diet. And these are the same things that help. Like if you, you know, aren't recovering, you're feeling that fog. Um, these things I think are, are really helpful. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm actually going to investigate that because when, when I used it, it was always mixed in, which I, I'm curious on your thoughts too. You talked about this with NO, with nitric oxide, with some sort of beetroot thing. Like it's always in this cocktail, like, and you've got this pins and needles and you're buzzing and you're usually caffeine thrown in there and you're just like off like a rocket. Um, But, but what, you know, especially when you talk about, you know, some of the endothelial changes that happen, you know, at this time, like the Mm-hmm. The vasodilation and constriction, maybe not as receptive. What do you think about the nitric oxide uh, supplements? Yeah. Well, so let me go back quick to the beta alanine. Like you, the pre-workout, I just saying like the pre-workout is a great way to add to your dosing. Okay. So like, for example, if you have, sometimes it's a one and a half or two grams in that, then just add a couple more supplementation separately throughout the day. Okay. Um, so to see benefits there. And then I think the nitric oxide, um, stimulators are very fascinating. We know that like, like arginine supplementation is not necessarily going to directly increase performance. Um, however, most of that is in men. Um, but I think that some vasodilators, we have some better ones like, um, citrulline malate, um, uh, that 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 one comes to mind. I wouldn't I wouldn't put rhodiola as an NO stimulator, but it has some interesting, I guess, more of an adaptogen. But I do think there's benefit in um, 
how do I describe this? So generally women have greater vasodilation than men. Mm-hmm. And so something like that would be like a supplement. A man might see greater benefit because, you know, their vasodilation by itself is, is reduced. Um, but what we don't know, and we have a study in the works to look at this, is what happens if you layer on high intensity exercise and you're occluding some of that blood flow, you know, where you go up and then you bring it down? What what happens? Do Do we see greater vasodilation or is that suppressed based on menstrual cycle hormones? Um, and so I think regardless, we know exercise is the greatest stimulator, but anything can help, particularly, for example, as we age, or you throw on, um, you know, if you're trying to increase performance, that little bit of vasodilation will likely help with recovery and return of nutrients, etc. So that would be one of those things that um, I would recommend for someone that is training at a high capacity or needs that help with recovery. Excellent. And you had, you had alluded to the modified starches before. There's so many different, there's like super starches and there's, you know, I mean, you know, and I'm like all these products. I mean, Scratch has some like um, science and sport has a product. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, those products for endurance exercise? Yeah. So um, we've done a little work and one of my colleagues, um, Mike Ormsby has as well. I I think part of it is our initial work showed there's really no performance effect in women when using the starch, but I think it comes back to intensity and duration. Like is, I I think a woman, if depending on the phase will not use as much muscle glycogen, let's say in the follicular phase, some of that depends, like I think convolutes the the outcomes. But I do think it is helpful as a way to increase the amount of carbohydrate we consume in a slow releasing way in our longer endurance exercisers. So as far as the brand, I mean, I don't know all the brands out there. I mean, I think some of it depends on just GI and, and what people like, but I do think there's definitely utility in our longer duration kind of aerobic exercisers for sure. And are women more um are more women more sensitive to the to carbohydrates during exercise? We we're talking about GI distress a lot. I mean I and I don't know if women experience it more than men when they're out in the field. There is some really fascinating data on um just GI distress for women. Um, and it is more prevalent, but I, I, it does depend on the type of carbohydrate, but I think that science, like the exact science of that, we need more data. So I don't look at necessarily carbohydrate metabolism. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, it, it would be more dependent on the type of carbohydrates consumed, which is just, for example, if we take something like a Gatorade, it usually has a blend of different types of carbohydrate, you know, fast and slow, they're both still quite fast. Um, And so I think a question is, is should we have a slightly different macronutrient profile of carbohydrates or slightly different, um, you know, most of them on the market are like a fructose or, um, you know, there's different types. I'm wondering if a, a blend differs or if a super starch might be more helpful because of just the slower releasing, whereas some of those others just hit the gut faster. Right. Um, there's a term I forgot. It was like, it's where you get this glycemic load and then it dumps and you have to go to the bathroom. 
I mean, everyone knows that. Um, and so I don't think anybody's actually looked at that in female endurance athletes with a super starch, but that would be kind of the thought is that it wouldn't cause as much of that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And there's, there are so many, so many different products. And as I've talked about on the show before, so much also matters, like you said, intensity, Mm -hmm. temperature, is it hot out? Is it cold out? Like there's a lot that goes on. Are you hydrated? What did you eat before? What did you eat the night before? Like how, how many training sessions? So it's so individualized, but I, I do think giving um, women like kind of the, the individual say like, Oh, I, I, I'm not recovering or I'm not feeling as good. Like what are some other things that we could do? Or like, I am going to the bathroom every time I go to exercise. Like what are the things that we should look at opposed to taking this over the counter thing that we all, you know, Gatorade or whatever, maybe doing something slightly different. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Are there other supplements on this list, do you think, that are particularly useful for women in this menopause transition? I mean, we have nootropics, we have vitamin D. Yes, yes and yes. Um, Okay, so vitamin D, I would say, is one um, that is really helpful. Just vitamin D tends to be related to everything, not only immune function, but recovery and muscle. And so in bone. Uh, that was one other thing about creatine that matters mm-hmm. in this group. If you add, if you take creatine when you're older, it's not necessarily going to increase your bone. But if you combine creatine with some sort of load, like a resistance training, it tends to increase bone. Um, so vitamin D has a role there. And then I love to talk about the nootropic piece because I feel like not enough people are doing that. It's a little bit of a scarier supplement, but it's in most places. And I think it targets, the best way I like to describe it is this fog, this brain fog that women experience. I think men experience it too, but women, it definitely is like postpartum and within across the menstrual cycle and, and as then women menopause. Age, yeah. yeah. And so I think it's one of those potentially natural ways to increase focus. Um, and some of them like a rhodiola can also improve exercise performance. So I think there's a variety out there. I, I, I think something like I'll, I'll throw out is that uh, Hooperzine A is a common one. And I worry a little bit about that because it's got a really long half-life. So for example, let's just say, I don't know, you're getting a little fatigued at noon and you take it. It has a 14-hour half-life, meaning it can then impact your sleep. And we already have enough that impacts our sleep. So some of the shorter-lived ones um, or taking them in the morning can have some, some benefit. And I think there's some really cool research now looking at some of those nootropics or adaptogens, depending on what exactly we're talking about. And um, citrulline and rhodiola are two that you've mentioned in the conversation. Are there others that you? Um, Rhodiola would be at the top of my list. Um, L-theanine? L-theanine, yeah, is usually in a blend. I don't know if it would just do it by itself, but there's a couple really cool like mind blends. I think some of the problem is then it gets really pricey and are you getting the actual ingredient? Um, But I am seeing more that are, are uh have some research or at least have some they'll at least say the dose on the on the um on the bottle and i think just recognizing that it does help with that um fatigue or that cognition opposed to like exercise performance and some of those things will be even more helpful for for women 
meaning that like women, we should be talking about that there is a significant increase in anxiety and depression and this cognitive, you know, uh, fog that a lot of us don't want to talk about. Oh, it's like, oh, I can't handle my shit or like it's (laughs) I'm tired. But some of these natural ingredients can can help. Um, and, and so I think those those are just helpful to have a conversation. Citicoline is another one that I think is on the market. Um, I know is on the market that I think has some good data that just kind of being aware. I think this is an area that is ever evolving. Yeah. Yeah, no, I to- totally agree. Are there, are there other aspects like a if you were to look at a, a day in the life, let's say, of a woman who's in perimenopause, maybe even postmenopause, very broad brush speaking, what what does her dietary day look like? Yeah. So in not that anyone wants to look at a paper, but we provide it like, uh, I guess <laughs> I, we pro- I can put all the links we uh, you yeah, have. <laughs> um, maybe I don't have it in this one. Let me see. Uh, yeah, I have like a we did give an example of a perimenopausal woman and what that would look like. So kind of broadly, what how I would interpret it is slightly increased daily protein intake, evenly spaced that throughout the day. And that's where I think uh, a protein supplement helps just because it's hard to get enough protein through food. And so that doesn't mean you have to take a protein supplement, um, but that or an essential amino acid. And then it is just paying more attention to some of those fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D, I think really paying attention to what you're eating before and after exercise opposed to like, you know, you can jump out of bed and go exercise, you know, paying a little bit more attention to that. And then asking yourself like, am I fatigued and what's it coming from? Is it sleep? Or is it, you know, lack of recovery or, and, you know, I think the intangibles matter. Like many women in this stage are so busy taking care of everyone else um, or they have, and they haven't prioritized themselves. So like almost taking a step back and saying like, what are the things that I'm dealing with? And are there, is there, I view nutrition as like a first line of defense, Uh, you know, like, uh, am I under fueled? Am I like, even I know what to do. And like, then I'll hear, oh, you know, intermittent fasting or like all these things. Like, I think we're given such terrible messages. So it's almost just a reminder, like, are you doing the basics? Are you getting your 30 grams of protein evenly spaced throughout the day? Are you eating around exercise? Are you getting your vitamin D and your, you know, your, I think a multivitamin helps as we get a little bit older, just there's a number of things that, that change. And then I do think like a, a creatine, and then depending on some of your, you know, your exercise performance, some other things can help. Yeah, that's that's great basics. I mean, and I, I, I would be inclined to think that if you take care of that, it also can help with the sleep co- department, right? Like if you're recovering well, if you're fueled well, if you're not all anxious because you haven't had a carbohydrate in five days, you know, like I think that it can help with with the rest of those pieces too. Like when I hear about all the, you know, shortening of the window for feeding and all of this speech, I'm just like, okay, so where are we getting our, how are we spacing our protein out? How are we getting, hitting all those marks if we're not, if we're eating in a six hour window or if we're eating, you know, it's, it's just not, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, and especially when they're like, oh, I'm going to fast to maximize fat use. Well, I, we actually know that if you eat something, particularly with some protein, you'll burn more fat and burn more calories. So like, why would we want to feel terrible while we exercise and go against our goals? 
but I don't think that message is often given there. Like, I mean, for the longest time it is, you know, we know that our bodies change quite a bit as we age as women. And so we're told exercise more and eat less, but that is not helping us. It's hurting us as you know, like, and, and so I think it is, you know, us standing up and saying like, no, we need different messaging and that's not what's going to get us to our goals. And then I, I I know you know this and I know your listeners know this, like, and we've talked a lot about aerobic exercise, but I think there's not enough conversation around um, aerobic exercise is great. And there's a lot of cardiovascular benefits that we need as women that, you know, our risk increases, but we cannot say enough about stimulating the muscle and the bone with some resistance training. And that is a lot of what, you know, impacts metabolism and body composition and supports the joints. And so I think that combined with nutrition can have a big role opposed to just go walk forever or do a lot of aerobic exercise, you know? Yeah. And well, and those two things paired together. I mean, when you look in the science, like if you want muscle protein synthesis, you need resistance training and protein, right? Like those two things work really best together. Then. Absolutely. And yeah. you don't want to, that's another reason, like if you exercise aerobically and you're fasted, like you're going to just break down more muscle, which is also not what you want to do. Right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Is there is there anything that we have not talked about that you think that our audience could benefit from hearing? Yeah. So one thing I um, is not in the paper that is a very hot topic right now is around collagen supplements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think uh, there's growing science, but still in this space, I think collagen is one of the hardest things to purchase because there's so many different types of collagen products. And a lot of times I see women, oh, I'm just going to go buy collagen. I know it really, you know, is relates to my skin and everything. Um, but what I, w- I would put collagen, like if you don't have the resources or the time, I would put a whey protein in front of collagen because it's a complete protein. And then if you, you know, have some joint pain, if you have time and money, then a collagen supplement um, is a good addition. And there is some good data, depending on the type of collagen on kind of our joints, our hair, skin and nails. But we often underrate, like drink more water, eat fruits and vegetables, get our complete proteins. Whereas a lot of times that sell, I think the direct to consumer sell for collagen is really easy. And I think we're bypassing some things that are cheaper that could have a bigger impact on our health that, you know, maybe we're not seeing. Yeah, that's good advice. Is is there a, if, if women were looking to experiment, and I know that they are, um, what are the and you mentioned importantly the types of collagen are super important there like what are the types if they're looking for joint support yeah um it's hard to tell just a product because there's so many like just think about uh, like one of the most common and i'm not saying i'm recommending this brand is the um the vital proteins mm -hmm. they have so many different types and so I think one thing just to arm the consumer is to look at that. What kind of collagen is it? Something like a collagen peptides is more as a replacement for whey, which we don't really have that. Whereas usually if you have a collagen product that says something about skin and joints, those are the ones that are not, you know, not for muscle, but it is going to help with um, joints. So there's a couple of different types type one, type two, um, I would just look for ones that target more of those beauty marks and realize it's not for muscle, but it it can support joint. And again, those are going to be better for those, um, 
peri to post that are dealing with some of those things. Otherwise, that amino acid kind of intake would be number one. Excellent. I really appreciate your time. I will follow uh, follow all the research that you talked about and and whatever studies you have mentioned, uh, send them my way and I'll drop them in the notes for our audience to follow up on. I will. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. I love uh, that you're getting all the information to, to the women. Thank you. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with the amazing Didi Griesbauer. Didi is a veteran professional triathlete who last year at the age of 52 won the Ultraman World Championship where she set a course record by over 45 minutes after crossing the line with a time of 23 hours, 22 minutes, and 58 seconds. For those who don't know, the Ultraman is a three-day event covering about 514 kilometers or 320 miles of swimming, biking, and running. We talk all about how she trains and accomplishes all of that. So come on back for that one. And until then... As always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Feisty.